Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm great. Um, I may have asked some questions this week that I didn't provide the answer to, but I'll try to provide the answer. Well, it wouldn't be a PBI class if we didn't have those. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, how's the church going? Uh, So far, good, I think. People completely stopped caring about protocol and all that stuff. So if we get sick, we know why. (laughs) Has anybody gotten a vaccination yet? Uh, Not anybody from the church, no. I mean, the government here is taking that extremely slow. Hey, Tim. Hi. Hey, Tim. How you doing, man? Hi, Alan. Not too bad, actually. Doing pretty good. Got got my letter today. I'm, I'm allowed to apply for the shot now. Why would you have not applied? before well no i mean i have to phone now to, to set it up most of it's they're shooting 70 year olds right now faith and i fit in they're not doing that there then apparently you guys hogged all the shots <laughs> uh, are you dependent on the americans i hope not and, uh, well <laughs> i think we're asking for something yeah yeah no it's a very unreliable source do you guys have easter in the u.s next weekend or is it a different holiday? Uh, we've canceled it. You know, Trump has said that uh, the whole thing is... I missed something. Is Trump still your president? <laughs> we, we still follow him, even though he's not. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Yeah, the picture's yeah. much clearer. I borrowed someone else's camera this week. Wow. I thought you were, it was smoky down there all the time. You were kind of in this haze. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just assumed that's the way it looked in New Zealand. Kind of foggy. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought I would do something for you. I will do something a bit unusual. I raised a question. Oh, I probably didn't answer the question that I asked. I hope you all weren't too frustrated. Well, Paul, actually, what I loved was the the TED Talk this week was 10 minutes and 35 seconds or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about my attention span. That was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a little more enjoyable than just listening to me drone on. But I might drone on tonight after I've said it. But you can stop me. One way or the other, you're going to get in your, your two cents. <laughs> That's right. The question is, what is the basis of our own understanding? The whole class is about looking back at the early church. I already made a strange claim. I said that we really can't do this history. The history of nonviolence is going to kind of disappear. But you could almost put this in Lonerganian terms, you know, that the idea of the law of the cross, of forgiving your enemies. I don't suppose we're going to have a record of how effectively the church has done that, or at least not a very good record. The question then is, where, you know, what is our attitude towards the early church? It's one of the ideas is the idea of progress. Uh, everything's getting better and better. This is an idea that we certainly encounter in science. Science is kind of the model. Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. What Kuhn is doing there, he, he's saying, well, this is the model for science. It just seems like that science, and of course, Kuhn is taking that apart. He's saying, well, that's not really true. And so this is also a way of reading history. Things are just naturally, maybe through the force of time, So that when we begin with the early church, we're beginning with a kind of crude understanding. And then, you know, we go to Constantine and things get better. So, you know, the early church was persecuted. Oh, that's bad. Then it's accepted. What I was describing is a way of reading everything. I don't think I agree with this, but I don't want to be immediately dismissive. Can we make progress in theology? Of course we can. For instance, our whole notion that Jesus was a pacifist and that the early church writings were pacifist, they, they, they were working and thinking toward nonviolence. And then we suddenly have 2,000 years where the church becomes powerful and uses violence to advance the kingdom. And then we suddenly, 
I mean, I, I don't, I know I, I'm going the opposite of the notion of progress because it's what's called the declension narrative where you go back and say, oh, if we could just get back to the early church and how they were. Well, there was some things that were really good to get back to. We don't want to be persecuted like them. Of course not. But the notion of actually following Jesus, the idea of the big criticism these days is, the, is one of any of the creeds, his birth suffered under Pontius Pilate as if his life didn't matter. And we're advancing theology when we start to say, well, actually, maybe, maybe his life did matter. Maybe he did do have some things to say, not just be the sacrifice for God to take out his wrath on. Right, <laughs> not that right. we believe that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming out. I think that we can apprehend and comprehend the core teaching that is there in the Bible, and we can apply it and understand it, that we can do better at this thing. Tim used the example of nonviolence. Clearly, the church has advanced, I think, in its understanding of slavery. We have in the Bible and in the early centuries that people just sort of accepted that institution. But now we would say, well, no. Now, now we could give, we could make all sorts of excuses for the early church. But the point is that I think we're in a position to do this better. Same thing with women. So we could list many areas. Part of this is also applying it to our own situation. In other words, that in this situation, we're not in exactly what the first century faced. And so part of the business of thinking, of theology, is we're reapplying the gospel, rightly understood, you know, whatever the heart of the gospel is, we're reapplying that to our situation. That's a key thought. The other one is the, the idea that Tim mentioned, and that is that the early church, they read Greek, they knew these things uh, better. I think everybody's agreed that we're going to use church tradition as some sort of guide. But the question is, what kind of guide? Is it, is it an absolute guide? The, the answer is that it can't be an absolute guide. If we've answered the question of nonviolence, by the second century, they're going to begin to have problems with people joining the military, when for the first century, that was not a problem at all. And so you can't just go back and say, oh, the church at this point was without problems. You know, same thing in the New Testament. Which church are you going to use as your model? The Corinthian church? The church has always been plagued by difficulties. Alan, what you're thinking, I'm seeing it in your, I'm just seeing the thoughts. That isn't this the whole restoration movement, that we're going to restore early New Testament Christianity? Simply reduplication is not enough. It's not an automatic sort of thing. What I would propose and what Yoder is proposing is something between these two extremes. There is a, an experience in the early centuries that we recognize that is significant. We're not saying that they understood our context or even that they applied the teaching that they had consistently. Now, that may sound a little heavy, but I think that what we see on this issue is, well, they began quickly to fall apart. So they read the New Testament in the world, the same world in which it was written. They read it, therefore, with more understanding. How they read the New Testament is helpful to us. And so I think it is a guide to us. But we can also see that their own faithfulness to the gospel that they had understood was maybe limited. My point here, I think, is a kind of exciting point. And that is that we can take the core teaching of the New Testament, and, and we need to take it and be up, applying it in a fashion that is not just a mechanical application. Just kind of funny, you're kind of going this, this track, because I, I, was, I was really thinking about just that whole big picture of, of violence. And so um, I was thinking it's not just the New Testament, it's the Old Testament too. It, it's this vision of shalom. That's the, that's the only lens you need to read these texts, you know, and I was doing a whole bunch of things thinking about allegory and spiritual reading and theological reading, and, and that seems to be the, the, the essence of, of, of this, this piece, this shalom, and I, I guess just popped into my head was the passage in John where Jesus says, you know, in the world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world, you know, my peace I, I give you. And so everything is that sense of, you know, it's, it's not just a New Testament thing that people were finding peace. It, it, it's the late motif, if you want to call it that, or some sort of driving force that we were looking for and people were hoping for too, was just to not be 
slaughtering and being slaughtered by your enemies. Yeah, yeah. And, um, it's so radical. Like it, it's so it's and it's radical then because you know we we understand how the gospel came into the late antiquity and how it was revolutionized just the way people thought in terms of so many areas, human life and dignity and and purity laws and all you know on and on and on that that we think Jesus was really quite radical with his ideas. Probably yeah. too radical for the people who even wrote about it in many ways. Yeah. And we're still coming to terms with it. Like you said, you know, how many, here we thought, you know, slavery, you know, the laws and all the rest. And now we got Amazon who's building company of slaves. A new form of wage. And I say that half tongue in cheek because unfortunately I support Amazon. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can't come down too hard on. uh, No, I can't. The the impact that the the gospel has had is, is phenomenal. Let me get a little flaky on you. Dan, you you are at a great advantage in not having been indoctrinated into a particular understanding in this area. If you go through a seminary education, what they're, you know, one of the things that is going to be said, well, in theology, you don't want creativity. Well, there is an idea that, that you pick up that you just keep doing the same thing over and over. And what I'm saying is, no, you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over, that you're going to have to understand this in this present context, and that is the theological enterprise. You're going to re-understand it. Let me give you a far-out illustration. I just watched a film, a drama on uh, Albert Einstein. Think of what Albert Einstein did in regard to Newtonian physics. There is the, the understanding, you know, that Newtonian physics applies. It, it is, it works. It applies to the normal world that we live in. But of course, it doesn't apply, it doesn't work to the very big and the very small. It didn't explain, what was it, the rotation of the planet Mercury. They, they were even positing another planet. And Einstein comes in and says, well, actually what's happening is that time and space are not separate laws where Newton had said time is an absolute law and space is an absolute law, Einstein says, well, no, actually, they're the same thing, that it's a time-space continuum. And then he says that what's happening with Mercury is that the time-space continuum is being bent by gravity. Nobody ever thought that way. It is a kind of illustration of, I think, what's happening in Christ. Our normal approach to human understanding is that everything is kind of law-based, that everything follows these rules, and the rules or the law is the, you know, that is the final and full explanation, or to state it in the religious terms, that life is in the law. And of course, what we are encountering in Christ is an opening up that we can no longer contain this understanding within any simple symbolic system, that it's just opening the world up uh, in a radical fashion, that what Einstein did for science, that w- that's sort of what we should always be doing theologically, is that we're not bound by this law, by these rules, you know, in the sense, I'm not throwing that out, I'm not saying those things are simply bad, I'm just saying that that can be the shaping force for us. And I'm afraid that theology has fallen into a kind of Newtonian attitude. You know, we just do what we've always done. And I think we should be more Einsteinian in our theological understanding. That's kind of hard too, Paul. I mean, I I agree with everything that you're saying, but if I were to have this conversation with some of the people that maybe we've encountered, a couple of us have encountered over the years in some of the ways that they teach things, even if they focus on a historical grammatical method and tend to have kind of a flat reading in some instances of Old Testament or New Testament, um, you know, harmonizing the Gospels, things like that, that they would also agree that they're doing theology and that in a sense that it kind of, it might even take on the appearance of some of the stuff that we're talking about and doing. So I don't know, it's just kind of, I'm just pointing, I'm not making a claim or anything. I'm just kind of pointing that out, that even in this conversation, if you were trying to compare and contrast one way over another, I know when I was in the other way, I would have thought I was doing theology. 
Yeah, I don't mean to, you know, that would be like saying that Newtonian science is not science. No, it's still science, but it becomes stuck. Yes. It became stuck. <laughs> I think that's happened theologically, that theology got stuck. And you and I are being brought into the historical critical understanding, it's stuck in a really odd place because it's stuck in modernity. It is stuck in that flat, law-based, Actually, science is the model for the historical critical reading. Yeah, everybody wants to be scientific suddenly, and that's the, the reason that the historical critical method arises, as if you can apply the method and you get the truth, right? Truth and Method is the book that Hans George Gadamer writes. And kind of the idea is, oh, you just apply the method, you apply the metric, uh, put the numbers into the machine, and it'll spit out the answer. But I think that theology, I think Christianity is a much more creative enterprise. Living is a much more creative thing than, than what we've made it in the church. It's become, it can become a kind of law-based, and not just simply in the sense of legalism. Uh, it certainly ha can do that and has done that, but I mean in this sense of a kind of incapacity to break out of the tradition or uh, uh, a particular understanding. Paul, and again, I'm, I, I'm totally you know, with you on this. And are, you, are you talking too that even with the, the move toward the more mystical tradition, and I know you might not be, I, I can't remember if you are or aren't a fan of Richard Rohr, you know, that certainly echoes a lot of kind of how he thinks and what he's been saying and the challenges that he's brought. And I certainly appreciate his work. I can't say that I'm well read on Richard Rohr, but Richard Rohr is a Franciscan. And so he is applying a kind of Duns Scotus understanding in which little being and big B being are all interrelated. And in saying this, I don't I wouldn't simply be critical of Rohr because I'm a little bit with you that Rohr is he's saying certain things that I could quote and say, yeah, that's that's good. He wants to re-mystify, you know, just that idea may be a, a good notion, but unfortunately, the way that he's going to re-mythologize or re-mystify, re-enchant, I would claim is precisely the way the world became unenchanted or disenchanted, uh, that Duns Scotus is precisely the one who has given us a flat reading in other words, I'm afraid Richard Rohr, as you know, I'm not just dismissing everything he's saying, but I'm afraid that in attaching himself to Duns Scotus, and and he's consistently doing that reading, you know, that uh, my dog is God, everything is God, and uh, well, if everything is God, nothing is God. If it's all panentheistic, then you end up with exactly the kind of flat ultimately atheistic understanding. The new way of deification, that's all. <laughs> yeah. I think he's not advancing the, the... I know a lot of young people really like Richard Rohr because he, he, he's, he has gotten us off of the idea of penal substitution, and, and a lot of that I can agree with. But then he pits, you know, he says, we need to get rid of Jesus so we can have Christ. <laughs> uh, he just lost me there because that he's doing what Duns goes yeah fair enough I think you have a, an a clear opinion on him <laughs> and that's after reading one book so I can't claim to be an expert did you say one paragraph <laughs> I'm just giving you a bad time yeah I read the jacket cover <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of the way I, well, I, I guess the thing about him too though is I find he certainly has no trouble though kicking against the tradition you know he's 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 certainly willing to say some you know he, he can say it in a nice way some semi-outrageous things and so at least i think he's trying to upset the apple cart but yeah i i, I agree with what you're saying i i can f track that and you know partly uh with somebody like roar i think that we're in such a desperate situation in the church with the up-and-coming generation that if people are finding this works for them, okay, well, I, I just don't expect it to work in any kind of deep sense, but maybe. 
So I don't I don't mean to simply be negative because I actually I read some of this stuff and I say, oh that's a good thought. But the overall project is not a new project. He's just a good Franciscan. Okay, that's my first point. The second point, it's a kind of simple point. You know, what's the difference between the first century and the second century on the issue of peace or you know what's happening that is different? After 170, 175, we began to see that there are soldiers. We're beginning to see there's several shifts. The history we have by Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, uh, the three major voices, they're all going to say the same thing about pacifism. But of course, what is there in the record here? Alan Kreider is doing that history also. Two things that are happening, there are pacifists, but there are also Christians in the army. Uh, and we don't quite know quite what was happening, other than that uh, Tertullian says, yes, there are Christians in the army, and they shouldn't be. You know, apparently he could argue this, and nobody's going to contradict him. And so he's just saying, well, this has been the tradition, and if you're a Christian in the army, you must misunderstand. And the other thing, of course, were by the time you get into the second, third, fourth century, the persecution is going to cease, that some people, you know, they're not going to have had persecution themselves. And actually, Rome is starting to function for them in a kind of positive way. They may find being Roman appealing. Yoder makes this point that, you know, even in Luke, when Luke uh, in Acts talks about the world, he's actually just saying the Roman Empire. That is the, their world. And Christians are beginning to literally think this way. That, well, there's those barbarians, but they don't even count. They're the people that are, you know, outside. And then the other thing is that these same theologians are beginning to work on apologetics. What that means is they're going to begin to think in, you know, we we'll get we got actually engagement with Greek philosophical thought. They're going to begin to empathize with their neighbors. They're going to begin to actively present the gospel in a way that their neighbors would understand. And so there is a, a recognition of the dignity of philosophical thought. And as Yoder puts it here, being an apologist meant accepting a degree of identification with surrounding culture. Sort of the way like that famous apologist uh, Ravi Zacharias did? <laughs> Mm. Sorry, too soon, too soon. You know, Ravi Zacharias, when I was still in Japan many years ago, he wrote a book on postmodernism, of course, which was thoroughly modernist. But actually, it was kind of my introduction into postmodernism. You know, he was thoroughly modernist. He, he's doing apologetics in that fashion that I think is flowing out of an Anselmian understanding in which it's a kind of a force of pure reason. That form of apologetics is itself steeped in modernity, that it's bound by a kind of modernist understanding. Uh, well, the, my point with Ravi Zacharias, this gets bizarre. I just happen to think that you can trace somebody's sexual failings, to, but let me say it and then I'll say it's ridiculous. I'm afraid that by placing him where I am in modernity and by saying this was his failing, that his moral failing is not a huge shock to me. Partly what is taking place in a modernist Christianity. I mean, look at the sexual scandals we're surrounded by. You could characterize, in, you know, obviously an overgeneralization that in uh, fundamentalism, you know, the kind of preaching against who was the Ted Haggard that, you know, he was rabidly going against the homosexuals, but the whole time he was having a homosexual affair. And his explanation is, well, we're all sinners, and I'm just showing you that uh, I'm a, I'm like Paul, I'm a chief of sinners too. And and so there is this, this Christianity that is a kind of modernist Christianity that is a disconnected from any kind of ethical, especially in fundamentalism and Christian evangelicalism. In other words, the ethics of the system. I'm getting off track here. I can see you guys are looking at me like, why is he, what's he doing? But, but my point with, the, with Ravi Zacharias was, I think he showed a characteristic failing 
that was already there in his apologetics. Now, Trenton, you want to raise a question at this point about John Howard Yoder. I do recall hearing something about some of his um, experiments and the way that he lived out his life as well. John Howard Yoder failed us in the same way. Dan, this sounds ridiculous, and it it probably is ridiculous at, at some levels. And this is actually a very Yoderian point. That is that our theology is a part of a kind of holistic understanding of what it means to be human. I think one of the key ways we all fail, that it's going to always show up in our failure of understanding, our failure to be human, it's going to show up sexually. I mean, that's true, right, in Genesis. But what I would claim is that there is a characteristic failure that you can link to, you can trace this out. And what I'm doing here a little bit is a bit of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And Yoder then is also going to become himself infatuated with simply a kind of social gospel. He's not this way in the beginning. He kind of devolves, I'm afraid, and loses the holistic sensibility that I think he began his career with. All right, enough of that. Paul, I just ask you, though, here as you're, as you're moving into this part about the apologetics and being an apologetic degree of identification of the surrounding culture, is this partly where you're, you're, you're going to say that um, this is kind of the shift also to the Greco-Roman or the, I, I know it's a, not to say a platonic idea, where, where Christianity became much more about ideas than about ethics and, and morality? That's where we're heading. It's becoming, it's going to become more legalistic. I don't mean by legalism what we mean, but what they are going to do, they're going to talk about the law of Christ, and you, you, know, you follow these laws, and there's a sense, I think, that that can be a good thing, but a simple legalism a simple following of the law. You know, by the time we get to 1100, of course, that's that we're that we've completely floated off into a kind of abstraction. So, yeah, the answer is yes. That that's present and that's what Yoder actually says that. There's four things they won't do. They're not going to kill. They still see serving as a soldier as wrong. They won't worship Caesar and they won't swear oaths. At this point Prior to the Constantinian shift, that's going to remain. There's no question about that. They didn't really approve of Christians becoming soldiers. But, of course, in peacetime, what it means to be a soldier, well, that could mean you're a, a, the postman, or that could mean you're in charge of road work. Just because you're a soldier, you, in fact, most soldiers probably aren't doing violent stuff. And in peacetime, nobody's doing violent stuff unless you were part of a kind of police force. There is this melding, a slow melding into the culture, because the empire became more accommodating to Christianity, and Christianity became more accommodating to the empire. And this is pre-Constantine. And so one of the signs of this at the Council of Arles, that if you became a Christian and you were a soldier, you know, before if you became a Christian and you were a soldier, you were expected to get out of the army or to die. We have, you know, who was it, Maximilian, that, who dies a martyr's death. He's actually the son of a famous general. He's in the army, he becomes a Christian, and they want him to take the oath, and he said, I made an oath to Christ, and they kill him. And for many centuries after that, they actually quote what he said in response to the Roman authorities. And here we've got just the opposite. If you become a Christian in the army, You can't just resign, but you have an obligation. Now, that doesn't mean that their obligation is to fight, but their obligation is, you know, you have to fulfill your promise that you made to the military. And so the sword was the symbol of the peaceful Roman society. It was a ceremonial sword. You can't just cast that down. And so in all of this, and the thing that I'm not really addressing is what was the attitude toward the state? Yoder's point is, well, that's an illegitimate question because they had no abstract notion of the state. They just had the Roman Empire. But clearly they're being assimilated, that there's a kind of mutual thing taking place. So Yoder's point here is that there is a kind of superficiality to Christian moral thought, even then in this kind of pre-Constantinian period. You know, they had the clear laws or legal arrangement 
if you broke the law, well, could we forgive you? This is going to come up with the Donatists. It's, they're going to say no. And of course, the, the common idea is, well, yes, that we can forgive. You know, the things that they would forget, more likely forgive sexual sin, uh, they even then began to forgive the notion of those who had become apostate. We would call this legalism if you keep the rules, and the rules were thought to apply to all situations. This is always the human failure, that we fall back in, and, and not just calling it legalism, but what I described with, that we always tend to fall back into this rule follow. Yoder's point here, what we need to do is have a more holistic understanding of discipleship, fellowship, worship. You know, they begin to rate the sins. How how bad is the sin, and is it a venal sin? Is it what are the what are the levels of sin? Seven. Well, that's the bar- virtues. And of course, we could name some significant theological development. I'm not denying that, but I think as a whole that that there is not a development across the board in the church. It's one of the things that are kind of come up with uh, Augustine, the uh, Donatus. They're going to literally use the sword to close down Donatus church. And all the Donatus were saying, let's be more strict. Let's not let these people back in. And so it's almost like, this sounds funny, but there was a forced leniency. That as the state and the church fused, I think that there was a loss of uh, degree of profundity. The Donatist controversy. Now, wasn't that the ones where persecution came? And you said, oh, fine, you know, they, we're going to kill your family unless you deny Christ. So they would deny Christ and then their family would live. And then next week they're sitting in Sunday with their family in the pews and the neighbor next to them. He's just had his whole family slaughtered because he wouldn't deny Christ. That sort of, yeah. So what do we do with these people? We, we, can we forgive them, you know? They said, wait a minute, this isn't right to just let these people back in. I'm not saying, I'm not taking a side, I'm just saying that what takes place with Constantine is the sword is used to make the decision for everybody. Even up into the councils, like particularly when the so Nicaea, there was a lot of violence even connected to that, wasn't there? Athanasius or something wanted to punch out areas. I mean, there was some pretty harsh things going on. It wasn't like like sort of the ecumenicalism we have today where people hopefully aren't trying to beat each other up because they don't agree with them. The profound point that I begin with, I think we can take this history and and we should just take it for what it is. There's this mixture of history, even origin. You know, you can go back into origin and he will use the example of slavery in a kind of positive sense. That no one is questioning slavery. We, we can look at these things and we should see the inconsistencies for what they were and say, wait a minute, they failed us here. It was not like they perfectly embodied the teaching of Christ. When did, was it with like, I mean, I know Calvin and all them, but was it like Augustine as well? When did the violent atonement theories of God start to show up? As far as I know, it is with Anselm of Canterbury. Okay, and what when was that timing? That's 1100 A.D. Okay. But to say that it just appeared out of nowhere is incorrect. You know, what's taking place in the first century is that when you talked about the devil, they weren't thinking of a guy with horns and a fork. They were thinking of Caesar. The prince of this world is going to be cast out. They understood that applied to the principalities and powers that were embodied in Rome. But by the time Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, obviously you're going to have to change that up because you can't say, well, there's the devil. There is the Christus Victor. And of course, Christus Victor, I I think, said right. that I think they sometimes portrayed that in a crude fashion. Origin portrays, you know, oh, that Jesus is the bait on a hook and Satan bites on the hook and God tricked him. Gregory of Nyssa, they both have kind of crude illustrations of it. But if you take the basic idea behind it, that what Christ is doing is defeating evil, and that evil manifests itself in the powers, the principalities and powers embodied in this political system. In other words, it's not simply that, but it's partly that. 
that that gets at the early church's notion of the meaning of the atonement, that the atonement is a defeat of the wars within and the wars without. And this applies to atonement theory. That I think that you can just state in a flat way, sin is violence and violence is sin. We need to redefine what violence is. We don't just simply mean a physical violence. We need to expand it in both directions. We need to understand that the violence that we would do to ourselves, that Paul is describing in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. He's describing the way this oppressive force of the law pits me against myself. And so that's the war within. And this war within is generative of a form of violence. The war without is no different. You know, we began the class by talking about the first casualty of war is truth. And that is because once you sacrifice life in a cause, you're not going to turn around and say, whoops, we made a mistake. But there is the sense that the sacrifice of life is a verification. You can think of this at several levels. You know, in idolatrous religion, how do you know that the Amaterasu or the gods uh, are hungry? Well, we know because when we cut out the human heart and feed the gods, they're happy and the sun rises. We can see the gods are pleased. And so the sacrifice is almost its own confirmation of the existence of the gods. I think that there's a deep psychological truth in that. So, you know, that's sort of what we're saying about war. You invest life in war, nobody's going to turn around and say, well, that was stupid. Sorry, buddy, to all of the soldiers that laid down their lives. Because first of all, your neighbors who sent their children off to fight in that war, if you say something like that, you're trampling on their religion. So war, it is a sacrificial system, but you understand it also generates meaning, just as idolatrous religion does. You know, what is bravery? What is honor? What is valor? Well, the the war system creates that meaning. But I think we can also do that individually, that as we invest our lives in whatever it is, it really doesn't matter, some form of addiction, some substantiation of our own ego. Actually, kind of real quick, I had a question for Dan. I was typing up, but I'll just say it. Because if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you had mentioned that you were kind of coming out of a culture in the church that had that more of a violent understanding of God and his atonement, except I guess, so for us, we can relate to that because of our, you know, in America, the nationalism and the the unity of the military might and all that with Christianity and stuff. But you mentioned that that's not something that you guys really experience in New Zealand. So like, where did that violent atonement picture of God, what vein did that fit into? Because it doesn't seem to really fit into like the narrative of the the country in that sense. Well, spotted man. Yeah. Um, I would say New Zealand Christianity is heavily influenced by America. And so I grew up and a lot of the people that we run into in circles, like is the word fanboy or we, we follow like these pastors like um, John MacArthur, John Piper, Francis Chan, reformed theolo- theologians, Paul Washer. These are good theolo- theologians to us. <laughs> yeah, you're right though in saying that like the general society is is so such a mounting pot of different ideas that it's hard to say that we are any one thing, but I would say that we're definitely not aggressively nationalist and we're definitely not in favor of, of wars as a culture. Um, and that kind of is an interesting point, isn't it? That the church against all odds is the place that believes in violent atonement. The church is the place that believes in kind of this. It doesn't say it necessarily outright, but this kind of what's driving it all is, is a violent framework. And in society is kind of the peace makers and the, the people who are, yeah, sure. They've got their own version of it, which is very liberal. 
but in saying that there's a lot that goes along the lines of love and peace and acceptance that maybe um, when you follow the type of ideas that I've followed in the church quite unexpectedly you realize that you are following the more violent of the two worldviews. At least Mexico and New Zealand share something in common with theologians. Uh, John MacArthur you mean? And, uh... Yeah, translated theology books come from all those guys that Dan just mentioned. <laughs> so it's really hard to use any material you know, in churches here. I'd rather just do my own stuff from scratch or you know, try to translate, you know, uh, translate things from other people that I think they're better theologians. But yeah, most books in Spanish, you know, Christian bookstores, it's just from those guys, especially MacArthur. But by the way, just a little uh, commercial here. I watched a five-minute clip of MacArthur yesterday, and, and he's fairly certain Ravi's in hell, by the way, just, just oh. so everybody set the record straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that as well. <laughs> yeah, did you see that? You shouldn't be watching that. <laughs> that would be an interesting study, a sociology, because they're, they're, I get that a little bit about Canada, New Zealand. Americans, we've we, we got to be one of the most violent places in the world. And I, I know it is connected to the theology and the, the way the theology has been nationalized. I, New Zealand's very interesting in that sense. But just again, I think Canada sounds quite similar. Um, when, would you agree? If, if all of your Christian thoughts come from that violent worldview and then your society in Canada or New Zealand is quite liberal and peaceful and just kind of a, a really eclectic mix of different ideas, all of a sudden you realize that you're within the church and you, you believe in like a really violent um, eschatology and all the whole thing falls apart. And it's just quite a awakening moment when you realize wow like i've got a lot of learning to do well you see dan the way you guys deal with it is that you've got this violent theology what we do in canada we have our hockey and so that's kind of our way of, of dealing with it you know very common thing is to state i'm not a big fan of hockey because there's all that pointless skating between the fights <laughs> <laughs> to say that christian circles come out and just out and out verbalize a violent theology wouldn't be quite correct but i would say that it definitely drives everything and it comes through subliminally and so i've listened to the um the podcast about being made right rather than righteous um something along the lines of getting away from a contractual reading of romans so many times because that whole idea to me is like completely foreign and so that would probably be my big realization is that on the surface, it's all lovey-dovey, um, but beneath it is this kind of quite weird concept that I'm only just realizing drives the behavior. I would say the same thing in a strange way. In, even in Japan, there is this underwriting pacifism. Now, it has a direct, in Japan, of course, it is, I think, directly related to a, directly and indirectly to a, a kind of Christian influence. That actually, in the in Japan, we have a peace. We uh, yeah, we Japanese. There is a peace constitution. There is almost a commitment to peace there. Of course, the Americans now have taken the other side and are encouraging the Japanese to be right wing, you know, militaristic, and all the things that we wouldn't have wanted them to be prior to World War II. Now we want them to be because we want them to send their military to the hot spots in the world so they can die. To achieve peace the Roman way. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Would that be called the Pax Americana? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes it is. Either you make peace or we're gonna blow you up with these nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny that what pretty much uh, made my in-laws run away from the Baptist church recently was John MacArthur. <laughs> it was his theology. Because the, the preacher, uh, the pastor where they used to go, I think he's like in the online Bible college, you know, MacArthur. You know, it got to the point that he's he stopped having women participating at all, like not even kids' classes and stuff like that. And so that was actually the first time my in-law came to me to ask questions about women's role in the church. So that was kind of an interesting conversation because he never wanted to talk about church with me. 
I guess that was the heretic that took yeah, away yeah. his daughter to some weird cult. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, after we talked and I pointed out, you know, there were, uh, you know, women prophesying and stuff like that in Corinth. I was like, they were not shutting up completely. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of they can't speak, uh, not quite biblical. Yeah, yeah. So far, you know, even when we talk about things like violence, like he, he doesn't quite buy it yet. You know, we, we've been having conversations and certain things he's changed his, his, his mind about, you know, Baptist theology, but peace is not one yet. It's like, well, well there are situations, you know, where you could use violence. Yeah. Well, like, you so. just may need to shoot somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever wrestle with or kind of come up with a concise definition of shalom? Uh, I've actually found two, and I'll, I'll post them. The focus in the two that I found, that there is a holistic notion of well-being and peace. But, you know, I, I think this is an area that definition may not serve us well. You know, you asked me that question, I thought, okay, I've, I've got these two things, and neither one of them were. But, you know, what I would add to what I haven't found, you know, when we're talking about Christian peace, it is this positive presence of God that we participate in that brings about a well-being and nourishment of our humanity and of fully developed Imago Day. I like the question, and I don't think there is a simplistic, well, there, no, there are simplistic answers, but what I was hoping for was. And it's interesting that one of the things that we seem to be able to do, and again, it, it, that we, we're trying, when, when, when Jesus says, you know, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, be like your Father. Well, there's this funny little meme that says, God, in, I invite you to love your enemies. Will I torture mine in hell forever? Yeah. You know, and it's like this huge disconnect, whereas we're trying to say, no, God is about rest restoration. He's not about punishment. And so the whole thing, it's just all the way down. You've got this punitive, this angry, this, I think there's more psychology in it than there is theology and philosophy. I think, I think if we study the childhood of some of these people, you'd find some, maybe some pretty horrific fathers. So they need God to be just like that father. Dan mentioned, have you, are you guys familiar at all with Paul Washer? Uh, I wasn't, like, uh, no. And he's got, there's this meme, and again, it's a picture. He, it's this whole idea of when we're all together, finally, at the end of the world, the judgment, there'll be this huge standing applause by all of us uh, that God has rid the earth of these sinners, the, you know, the, the non-elect. And we'll be clapping, and we'll be just wonderful that God has, that their, their sight never has to be seen again. I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, I feel sorry for these people. It's angry that they have this kind of, you know, this will anger, you know, God just can't stand the sight of us at all. Yeah. And, if, you know, apart from the elect and he manages to hold his nose and fine, I'll drag a few into heaven. I mean, that's, I know that's a caricature, but it seems to, that's how they talk. A lot of people like that are part of this peace tradition. And, um, and just one other little comment too, talking about the theologians that Dan brought up. So here I'm in a, I'm in a, the edge of sort of a, a Bible belt, a huge number of Anabaptist or Mennonite churches. Probably 80% of them have been taken over by Piper, MacArthur, all of that kind of theology, even though right their core is the peace message. I can't, I can't understand that. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. It's like gone like wildfire. Yeah. I had a short, a short debate the other day with a Catholic, and, and he was talking about atonement, and it was always this, you know, violent God idea thing. And I was like, so what was the point of bringing that God to a place like Mexico where we already have plenty of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was a short debate. because <laughs> he, he couldn't answer that after that. And that was it. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, man. That's competition here. <laughs> but my God's bloodier than your God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As Dan was saying that about New Zealand, I was thinking that obviously the history of these countries I mean, think of the history of the United States. I'm sure it's playing into the levels of just the peaceableness or not that is playing itself out. That that we can't, that we are all suffering from the violence that is there in the founding of, of 
the various countries. Yet within the U.S., remember, there's also been some tremendous peace movements, too. Vietnam War and Martin Luther King Jr., he was, he was trying to have nonviolent rallies. And you know what I mean? There's a tremendous, you've got a tremendous history of people who have also engaged the peace tradition, Yoder and I, Howard Voss. I mean, it is, it, it's, getting, it's getting traction, I think. Trenton, give us shalom. A female theologian was talking about her definition of shalom and just boiling it down. Obviously, she's written a lot on it, but just that idea that it's not that everything's made perfect in and of itself, but that the um, relationship between everything is made right. And that that's kind of the central idea of what shalom, that peace means. Oh, I like it. And I guess that I would tend to turn, it is a relational understanding but in that relational understanding i think part of that piece is psychological it's within the individual too that i think that the thing that paul is describing as the opposite of peace in romans 7 and then the undoing of that agonistic struggle and the positive peace that he's describing in romans 8 he's really describing a shift from the root problem of the absence of peace and then Romans 8, to my mind, is what shalom looks like, what peace looks like. Trent, I think that our discussion that we've had in the past on women in the church relates to this too. I'm just convinced that the sign, I was saying this a little bit about that the uh, human failure is going to express itself sexually. And I don't mean simply in perverse sexuality but I think also in the oppression of women. That is a sign that, you know, it's kind of funny. We Every form, whether it's racist or, uh, you know, the various forms of oppression we face, but I think the last to go is probably male oppression of, of, of women. And I think that is a deep-rooted psychological. I think that gets at our, you know, because it, it is so tied up with our own self-concept. All right, good good conversation. All right. Have a good one, guys. See you right. later. Good night. Have a good week. Yeah, good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.